Welcome to Famous Lost Words, where we find classic interviews in the archives and play the best parts for you. I'm Christopher Ward with my co-host and the creator of the show, Tom Jokic. Christopher, we are here for Season 7, Episode 1. This is so exciting, and it's great to see you in person after a very long time apart. (laughs) Normally, you're in L.A. I'm near Toronto. Today, we are in a lovely home studio in Scarborough, Ontario, at what you call Pillow Talk Sound, because when you record, you often surround yourself with pillows and blankets just to deaden the sound so it sounds a little bit more professional. Just add coffee and candles, (laughs) and you have your very own Pillow Talk Sound. And by the way, speaking of having things your very own, I have something for you here today. Oh, what? There was an expression we used to use back in the day, in the analog years, shall we call them, that said, it ain't final till it's vinyl, (laughs) right? (laughs) And that was an excuse to just keep working on something as long as you wanted to. But it also means the end of a certain process of creativity. Right. What I have here in my hands, ladies and gentlemen, all 33 and a third of it (laughs) is the new album, Same River Twice. Here you go in vinyl, buddy. Oh, Christopher, this is great. Oh, Oh, Okay, so cut to two guys lunging across the room, <laughs> handing off a piece of vinyl. So Christopher has recently recorded a new album called Same River Twice, and among the songs is the very well-known, the song that you're best known for, Black Velvet. But I got to tell you, we've talked quite a bit about this album uh, in recent episodes, and it is exceptional. And this is a, just a lovely album. It looks good, and it's got the great songs, Let the Wild Wind In, Sway, uh, Black Velvet, of course, same river twice. It's a real treat to get the actual vinyl copy. I appreciate that. You're welcome. And you know what? It's thrilling for me to see it on vinyl. Oh, I bet. And to hear it, of course. I, I bet it is. <laughs> we got a show to do, buddy. We sure do. So before we get started, I have a question to ask you. What's the best concert you ever attended, Christopher? Ooh, I've been to a lot of concerts, big and small. You know, there's one that's a little obscure, but it was Crowded House at a club in Toronto called the Sibony Club. Did you ever go to that place? It was in Kensington Market. I wonder if I was at that show, because I saw Crowded House, and they did Whole lot of Love by Led Zeppelin, and it <laughs> made me laugh, because it was so funny, because they did it as a... It was so great. So anyway. Uh, that was a great one. Gosh. Uh, well, Live Aid, but that's kind of like... Ten concerts all rolled into one, right? Yeah, that's, that's, okay. sort of, that's cheating. We won't count that one. Sure. All right, I, I got the best one for you. The Rolling Stones at the Olympia Theater in Paris. Oh, man. And that one is documented on that box set of uh, shows they did called Four Flicks. I see. Okay. So you can actually go and see the same show that I saw. That's amazing. That sounds great. Well, okay, so for me, I think it would be July of 1984, and it's Bruce Springsteen. And I've told you, I think I've briefly told you the story once before, but I had tickets. I lived in Sarnia, Ontario, which is about four hours away from Toronto. And I had tickets to see Talk Talk and the Psychedelic Furs that same night. And someone came up to me and said, look, would you take these Springsteen tickets uh, for Toronto? I'd never seen Springsteen. I wasn't a huge Springsteen fan. I didn't really know his stuff all that well, except what I heard on the radio. And I said, no, I'm seeing Talk Talk and the Furs. (laughs) <laughs> and the guy literally took me by the lapels and said, don't be an idiot. You're taking these tickets and you're going to drive as quickly as you legally can. And Ooh. I called up my brother who was coming to see me at the show in like, it was outside Detroit and uh, for the furs and talk talk. And he said, Tom, I really don't want to see Springsteen. Anyway, we went. Wow. Game changing, life changing night. It was so 
It yeah. was epic. It was it was immense. It was small in some of the the very detailed and personal stories that he told. It was euphoric rock and roll by the end of it, right? Yeah. And there were so many um, peaks, and I won't, I don't want to call them valleys, but there were so many huge moments and there were so many quiet moments and it changed me forever like it was one of those game changers what does your brother have to say loved it went to see him again the next time he came and by the time he came next time it was the full stadium at exhibition stadium in toronto whereas when we saw him it was just the grandstand so there's like twenty thousand of us the full stadium is seventy thousand, right? Yeah, that ain't, that's not the best way to see uh, Springsteen. Although you know he's good. Well, anytime. I saw him at uh, Wembley Stadium in London oh, wow. in nineteen eighty-five. Yeah, right around the time of Live Aid, and it was to eighty thousand people, and yeah. it was fantastic. So <laughs> he does know how to close. He that defies space, he? the numbers. Yeah. Okay, Christopher. Now, a few seconds ago, you mentioned the Rolling Stones, and with the recent passing of Charlie Watts, it prompted me to dive into the archives again. And I found a great interview with the Stones from 1989. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, yeah. This is very, very entertaining and informative stuff. Love this. Yeah, and Mick and Keith are in good spirits, and it's great to know that they're getting along because just a few years earlier, around the time of, what, 1985, 86, around the album Dirty Work, they were not getting along. They were sniping at each other. And so this is just great to hear them in good spirits and getting along. They sound like a band recharge, and I don't think you can fake that. No, absolutely not. And so we definitely wanted to start Season 7 with the Rolling Stones. What else have we got, Tom? Okay, Christopher, also coming up on this show is what I have called the most disappointing interview in our collection, and that is an interview with The Clash. Wow. The great news is, is we have an interview with The Clash. (laughs) The bad news is... Joe Strummer is not on the interview, and Mick Jones isn't on the interview. Nevertheless, you have to admit, Christopher, it's still pretty interesting because it's the clash just post-combat rock, trying to figure out what comes next in light of the departure of Mick Jones. Mm -hmm. And there's a little bit of a controversy at the end of this clip, and it's quite interesting. So that's still to come on this week's episode of Famous Lost Words. From 1969, that's the great intro by Charlie Watts to Honky Tonk Women by the Rolling Stones. What a great feel to that song. Spoken like a true drummer, Tom. Nicely done. (laughs) You know, Tom, the loss of Charlie Watts feels, to me, like the end of an era. Keith Richards put it plainly, Charlie Watts is the Rolling Stones. Now, arguably, you could put someone else in his place, as the Stones will on their upcoming shows, and a sizable majority of the fans probably, sadly, wouldn't notice. But ask a musician about what the difference is. This interview with the band is from 1989 and includes all the members, including Bill Wyman, who was in his very last time around with the band. They talk about the new album, Steel Wheels, an album that was intended as kind of a throwback to looser playing, more one-on-one, get locked in the room and write a song with the Glimmer Twins. (laughs) And it worked for the fans who made it a Canadian three times platinum and U.S. double platinum album, Mixed Emotions being their last top ten single. Right. So whatever you do to honor Charlie Watts, whatever smart little cocktail you have, just have one because that's what Charlie would want, okay? And dress well while you're drinking it. (laughs) 
You know, the critics were not quite as positive as the fans. Arguably, they don't matter as much. The reviews kind of went somewhere on the scale between tepid and dismissive, but Rolling Stone magazine was the one notable exception. So it's a very easygoing and obviously amicable group in this interview, and you get the feeling they had a lot invested in both the album and the upcoming tour, which would prove to be, by the way, a massive undertaking. The tour eclipsed the success of the Steel Wheels album, when under the guidance of Canadian promoter Michael Cole, it became at the time the most successful rock and roll tour of all time. They played to over 6 million fans made over 175 million US dollars. Right, and that's the wow. only time that I got to see them live. Oh, wow. It was a great tour. I saw it at the beginning and at the end. I think it was about two years in between. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. They were a lot older by the time that tour finished, right? <laughs> Weren't we all? <laughs> anyway, in this first clip, they talk about how to get that good old feeling back. To me, this is the best, I think probably the best album the Stones have done, at least since Some Girls. And if, and some of it kind of takes me back even to Exile on Main Street, uh, in, in just in the way the guys were playing and the kind of feel of it. It's called Loosen Up and Enjoy Yourself. Don't be so serious about it all. Mm -hmm. Music's fun. Or should be. It is for us anyway. <laughs> I haven't heard it. You haven't heard the album? No. <laughs> <laughs> we have regressed a little bit and... Thank God we did. The same as we did when we did um, Beggar's Banquet in the, in the late 60s when we'd done Satanic Majesties, the psychedelic album, for use of a better word. And uh, we went back to good old R&B and a bit of blues. There's some really good rock tracks on the album. I mean, I think the opening cart and Sad, Sad, Sad and Rock and Hard Place is kind of slightly different. And um, got like real kind of raunchy like um, real fast ones on there, you know, one or two of those. But you also got some other ones, you got some different kind of ballads. It's a, it's a hard rock album with a lot of variations that keep you interested. This is the first time for a long time that Mick and I have, have, have written in this way and so fast. Usually, I would say a lot of the best ones have come out of working under pressure and to a deadline, which we haven't done for quite a few years, you know. And uh, by putting ourselves in this position, this is saying, yeah, we're gonna make an album. If, you know, between February and June, we're going to make an album, which is already for the Stones. Everybody's going, ha, 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 ha. Oh, yeah, that's with that. We'd love to see that, you know. So, no, we're going to do it, you know. Just, uh, you see, you, f you work for all those years for the right not to be forced to a deadline. But it doesn't mean that you shouldn't enforce your own sometimes. You mean, you can't always take that luxury and, and think that that's the best way to make a record. You say, well, I've worked all these years to be able to say, you know, when the record company comes to where's the new record, and you say, when it's finished, all right? That um, it's not always the best way to make a record. And so sometimes you've, and what I've realized this year, especially with the Stones, is that if you give them the deadline, they'll make it. Everything's just come together for the Stones this year. You know, the very fact that they're together is like the most important thing, but it's been uh, a real pleasure to, to get back in with the band. I don't think we've made an album this fast since at least uh, somewhere in the middle to late 60s. When I knew this thing was going to work, was that Mick and I had written the songs and we said, well, you know, here, we're in a room and we're not killing each other. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> There's a great Keith answer with that classic Keith Richards wheeze. So much more to come on Famous Lost Words, including some great stuff from the late Charlie Watts. By the way, 
There's lots of Rolling Stones content on past episodes of Famous Lost Words. Check it out on the iHeartRadio app. Welcome back to Famous Lost Words, where we dig up interviews from the archives and play the best parts for you. I'm Christopher Ward. And I'm Tom Jokic. Still to come, a very rare find from the vaults, an interview with The Clash. Right now, we're in the middle of an epic 1989 chat with the Rolling Stones. And in this segment, they're talking about the first single from the album Steel Wheels, Mixed Emotions, which many people felt was literally about Mick and Keith's relationship. Here's Keith. Yeah, I can see that coming up with like a, you know, uh, and in a way, maybe they're right. I don't know, you see, because you sometimes it, it takes, even if you say, yeah, I wrote this song and blah, 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 or we wrote this song, you don't really realize what you've written until you've put it all together. And then you start to listen to it, you can say, oh, I can see how people Although, when you actually throw the idea out and Mick and I just sitting in a room, just knocking it out, that doesn't occur to you. You know, you say, oh, that's nice. You know, say, yeah, just, uh, what do you call it? I say, well, for the moment, mixed emotion. You don't even know if you're going to, the song's going to eventually end up with the same idea or with the same title or anything. You just, you call it something to identify it at the time and then... Certainly when you listen to it all put together, for instance, the hook's mine and, and Mickfield in the verses, it's written in the sort of the Stones classic. Well, Mick and I used to write, you know, sit down in a room, I'll come up with a hook and say, well, the rest of it just sort of goes like this. And then the same with satisfaction, you know, I'll go, boom, boom, ba da da, I can't get no satisfaction. And then Mick will take it away and come back. And then, so with mixed emotions, yeah, which is, I mean, in a way, is a when you, when I think back on it now, you know, it's only a few months after all, and then I, well, that's, that does sum it up. I mean, it summed up that, you know, when Mick and I got together in February and said, well, let's lock ourselves in a room and see what happens. And, and uh, so in a way, it's, uh, you never know where those things come from. In this clip, each of the Stones weigh in on what it's like to be back together after a long time apart. It blows my mind, actually, how, uh, not, polished but uh, uh, more than sort of tidying up uh, a rough sound. The band is very <laughs> tight and uh, sounding really really good at the moment. We always have fun, I always have a laugh because it's like it really is, I know it's a cliche but it really is like family you know you get together after not seeing each other for six months and it's great you know how are the kids and where you've been and what you've been doing and how's the old lady and it, it really is like that in this band and uh, when we do get together, it's just like Christmas with the family, once a year, you know, and uh, we all have a great time, have a good laugh, all tell new jokes to each other, and uh, we've been having a good time. We have spent two or three years apart doing our own things, and we've all learnt a lot in those three years, and uh, just by running your own deal, you know, both Mick and myself, Ronnie's been playing with Bo Diddley, Charlie took his orchestra, the Jazz Orchestra of America, Everybody's been playing a lot more constantly than you do if all you do is just the Rolling Stones. We're not so precious about the band and preserving that as we used to be. It was sacrosanct at once, the band. But we're a bit more mature about it now. 
That's Charlie Watts right there at the end, and we've got more with Charlie coming up. But first, here are Mick and Keith talking about the considerable challenge of figuring out the song list for the upcoming Steel Wheels tour. It is hard, but we, um, I figure there's about 10 songs that if, if you don't play them, people are going to say, I wish they'd have played. And you say, so, you know, they're paying you know, good money to come and see you, and I, I don't see why you should disappoint them just being difficult, saying, well, I don't want to play Brown Sugar. I mean, because they probably want to hear it, right? So, we're, you know, I quite enjoy playing Brown Sugar, but sometimes you don't want to. But, you know, so, but anyway, there's about 10 of those that I think you should play. If you're going to play like 25, 29 something now songs, you should play out 10. And then <clears throat> go to another, choose between another 10 of perhaps songs you haven't done very much, like, um, say, Ruby Tuesday or. Um, Painted black or something like that. With this album coming out so crucially close to the beginning of the tour, we can, you know, we are going to have to feed in new songs. So this gives us an opportunity, and I hope we're both wondering if it's possible to fight the forces, whatever they are, that make you do the same show every night to try and vary the show a little bit, with even with other old songs. You know, say, well, tonight. Maybe we do Ruby Tuesday, or maybe we do Lady Jane. Uh, maybe we'll, you know, in that part, or maybe we'll do uh, Carol, or we'll do It's Only Rock and Roll, you know, to, because this gives us an opportunity, because we have to put new songs in as, as the album becomes more more played yeah, and yeah. people know the songs. Because in, in huge football stadiums, there's no point in playing songs that people don't recognise. They're there, they're there for celebration. And everyone knows what goes on the stadium. It's a very big show, a big stage, and lots of razzmatazz and lights and noise and racket. And you can bring your girlfriend or your kids or your picnic and you, whatever, you know. I mean, it's an event and that's what it is. Well, you, you, look, you get up in the morning or whenever it is you get up and you look out the window and see what the weather's like because that is... The unknown, yeah, it's the elements, yeah. I mean, it's been my favourite phrase for many years, but if you've got a crosswind across the stage, some guy who's just got off of work and wants to go to sleep gets the best sound in the world two miles down the road, and maybe he don't even want it. <laughs> but, I mean, he's probably got the best mix there is, so you don't know if it's going to be raining, is it going to, you know, which way is the wind blowing today? It's very strange, but some of the best shows and the, the most memorable ones have been ones where there's thunder and lightning and the stage is wa awash, everybody's like soaked and you just get out there with everybody and get as wet as they do and uh, but you can still get a great show out of it. You can see how performing is just in Keith's blood and by the way coming up in a few episodes we'll have a 1993 chat with Keith as he's on a solo tour and he reflects on his heroin arrest in Toronto in the late 70s and how that event changed his life. And he talks about playing on stage with a group of guys that aren't the Rolling Stones and how much fun that is as well. Would that be the expensive Winos band? Indeed it is. Drummer Steve Jordan, who right. will now be the drummer for the Rolling Stones' uh, upcoming tour. Yeah, yeah. In this next clip, Keith talks about keeping the band together. This thing started off really humbly. <laughs> I mean, it was just a little living room in Barbados, and uh, we had a piano there and, uh, and a couple of acoustic guitars you know, and an amp if we wanted to go electric, and that was just about it. So I don't know what it is with songs. It's like, uh, because they, when it's just two of you just knocking it out, I mean, there's not a lot to be go wild about, you know, it's just... 
But to be able to recognize the ones that, yeah, yeah, it's in there, you know, let's, let's push this one, let's work this one forward. And uh, that one kind of bloomed uh, very quickly once we got that first riff down. Then it was that one built, built up very nice, very fast. Very cool. The song Keith is talking about there, by the way, is Rock in a Hard Place, which was the second single off of Steel Wheels. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. Still to come more with the Rolling Stones, including a clip of Charlie Watts talking about how Keith Richards turned him on to rock and roll. And don't forget to check out the more than 90 past episodes of Famous Lost Words on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're a big fan of music from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, we've got specific episodes dedicated to those decades. We've got classic artists from the 50s and 60s as well. And we've got more recent artists like Taylor Swift, Lady Gaga, Foo Fighters, and Kelly Clarkson. Check them out and don't forget to rate and review the show. Welcome back to Famous Lost Words, season number seven. Boy, that sounds good, doesn't it? Oh, it sure does. Okay, right now we're in the middle of a 1989 interview with the Rolling Stones, and here's Keith replying to the question, where do you see the Stones five years from now? Um, 15 years short of their peak. (laughs) 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 Um... That's a good one. Uh, the fact that they're back together again and, and, and producing such good stuff this year. Uh, I would say, well, they'll be hopefully together. Yeah? Uh, I just see no reason why not. To me, the, the sort of watershed period's over. Yeah, it was either, they, either we, we got back together again or we didn't. Yeah, there was, uh, and this year is a perfect year. We'd... Uh, to do that, the amount of time that had gone down with, you know, either we, you'd say, well, if it had gone on for another couple of years, say, I would say it would be very difficult to get the guys back together. The, the distance, the gap would have been too much. But uh, the fact that they've pulled it and we've pulled it together this year, to me, says uh, anything's possible. And that, to me, is one of the most intriguing things about where the stones are now in compared, you know, to, to how old they are and how long we've been playing and to rock and roll music is, uh, if, we, if we can't take it a bit further down the road, we'd be chicken, you know? I mean, it's like, let's find out. Nobody's taken it this far. Let's, Bands uh, have never so toured at our age before because rock and roll isn't old enough to have elderly statesmen in it, like you have in jazz and, and country music and, and every other form of music, classical and whatever. That's been going years, and people grow through their lives and still play the music. Rock and roll has only been going since 1954 or whatever, and people aren't old. I mean, Chuck Berry's 60 now. Um, Elvis would have been, wouldn't he? Jerry Lee Lewis, they're they're still there, uh, and we're still here, and nobody ever believes that you can have the energy as you get older. They think it's a young kid's music because it's not old enough to have, have elder musicians playing it. So here we are proving them wrong again, hopefully, because there's a lot of energy in this band, and I think we're going to shake a few people. Oh, I love that clip of Keith. Where do you see the Stones in five years? Fifteen years short of their peak, he says. <laughs> 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 That's a good that one. that was more than three decades ago. Wow. Yeah. 
Okay, so Christopher, we do have a Charlie Watts clip, but I can't be sure where it's from. I believe it's from the early 90s. Well, as we know, Tom, Charlie started as a jazz drummer, and that remained his passion. But this clip is fascinating in that it shows how he was able to appreciate rock and roll in addition to loving jazz. Keith Richards taught me rock and roll. We'd have nothing to do all day, but we'd just play these records over and over again. And I learned to love Muddy Waters and people like that through uh, an intensive three-year crash course, you might say. I mean, Keith turned me on to how good Elvis Presley was. I used to hate him up until then. Elvis was like the least sort of person I'd ever want, you know. I mean, Miles Davis was more what I would. That's what I considered someone, not Elvis, you know. Fats Domino was someone I considered, you know. So, but he turned me on to lots of other people like that. Great clip of Charlie Watts talking about how Keith Richards educated him on early rock and roll. There was a bit in there with Bill Wyman talking about what it's like when they get back together after not having seen each other for a while. Yeah. And he's and he, and he's, he sort of imitates the conversation going, oh, how's you going? You know, how's the kids? How's, how's the old lady? Right? Yes. That, that, quote, that quote verbatim was in the interview I did with him in London in 85. <laughs> <laughs> word for word. Hey, Christopher. Christopher, I am uh, currently sitting downstairs in my basement, but I'm right next to my drum kit, okay? So I've been practicing yeah. this. Just let me know. I'm just going to play the beginning of a song here, okay? So give me a sec. I have to, I have to move things <laughs> right. around. Okay? Okay, okay. Should I count you in? What's that? Should I count you in? Okay. One. Two, a one, two, three, four. That's, dude, that's too fast. That's not the song I'm playing, for God's sake. It's Hockey Talk Women? Yeah. Okay, one, two, a one, two, three, four. <laughs> How was that? <laughs> really good. <laughs> but, <laughs> wait. Way better than I could have possibly anticipated. And by the way, don't ever do it again because you will never better that performance, all right? <laughs> that is awesome. Wow. I never thought I would get to play drums yeah. for tens of thousands of people. That was so much fun. Thanks, Christopher. <laughs> um, mon plaisir, my dear. All right. There you go. The Rolling Stones on Famous Lost Words, along with a rather inept drumming tribute to Charlie Watts from yours truly. Sorry about that. Okay, we now go from the greatness of the Stones to the genius of Ray Charles. They're doing the mess around. Everybody's doing the mess around. From 1953, isn't that one of the feel-good songs of all time, Mess Around by Ray Charles? Tom, these upcoming clips will only make you wish for more, but you never know with lead archivist Jokic at the helm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Ray Charles was one of the most original and influential musicians of the 20th century. He blended gospel, country, and blues into some of the earliest rock and roll records made. Listen to The Nighttime is the Right Time, or What Did I Say, to hear that original fusion of styles. Mm -hmm. Now, Ray had a lot of ups and downs over a half-century-plus-long career, no surprise, and he had hits in genres from R&B to country to easy-listening pop. 
1960 number one hit, Georgia On My Mind, became his signature song. Now, he cited Nat King Cole as his biggest inspiration. Really? In okay. fact, I heard an interview with him on NPR, and he, he said that he listened to Nat Cole and tried to style his vocals after him. And in the moment, he did a little Nat Cole impersonation that was very convincing. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So that was his biggest inspiration, apparently. Yes. But his influence was something else again. Yeah. It was wide, including Joe Cocker and Elvis and Aretha and Van Morrison and so many other artists. Yeah. Ray Charles was the genius. Absolutely. In the first of two short clips, Ray talks about writing, I've Got a Woman. I Got a Woman was something I sat down and wrote. And... Uh, I, I think I might have heard somebody say they had uh, had a girlfriend way across town and uh, uh, across town. I, I put the way in it myself, I think. But uh, you hear people say, well, you know, my, my old lady lives on the west side or she lives on the east side or downtown or uptown or something like that. And I thought, well, you know, this might be a good title for a song. I got a woman way across town that's good to me. Say, I got a woman way over town. Good to me. From 1954, I Got a Woman, the genius of Ray Charles. Wow, such a wonderful performance, which was revived, in a way, via the Jamie Foxx impersonation in the great Kanye West song, Gold Digger. And that movie, Ray, from 2004, revived the popularity of Ray Charles and reminded us of the incredible talent of the man they called the genius. By the way, Ray himself was planning on attending the premiere of the film, but died just a few weeks before opening night. You know, it's funny, one of those um, down periods that we talk about, I saw him perform at a club in Toronto. Now, being able to see Ray Charles at all was special for me because it was the first time, but seeing him in a club, and he just tore it up. Yeah. It was it was unbelievable. It was just, you know, speaker melting great and kind of breathtaking musically. And he had a crack band with him, of yeah. course. Um, but he had some really low periods where, believe it or not, a guy with all of that talent was, was just kind of ignored for a while. And kind of struggling in the clubs with smaller events, right? Yeah. I know that, uh, I think it was Roger Ashby told me that he he saw him once probably in the late 80s, early 90s, and Ray was, it was in a fairly small club, and Ray was sitting at the edge of the stage. Roger was in the front row, and Roger was afraid that because he moves around so much, he thought that Ray was going to end up in his lap. Like he was, <laughs> <laughs> wow. he, was, he was moving around, the microphone was moving around, like he was so close to him. He, he was so close to me, he said, I thought he was going to end up right in the first row. <laughs> wow. Interesting historical fact, Ray Charles was one of the first black musicians to be granted creative control over his work. I record our life because I'm, I'm, uh, I'm sort of fortunate that I don't have someone to tell me, look, uh, this is what we want you to record. So anything I, I like, I, I, if I like it, I record it. And I don't really think, uh, somebody asked me one time if I was on a, a, a deserted island, what, you know, what records would I like to have with me? And I think uh, if I had to take any records with me, I probably would just say, forget the whole thing. I don't want to be bothered. Hey, mama, don't you treat me wrong? Come and love you, daddy, all right long, all right long. Hey, hey. From 1959, that's What Did I Say, Ray Charles. With an artist like him, you absolutely wanted to give him complete artistic freedom. For many people my age, by the way, our first exposure to Ray was his version, his 
great performance of Shake a Tail Feather from the Blues Brother movie. Oh, right. It was so well done, and he was like, he was just killing that keyboard and singing so well. Uh, by the way, cool song fact about the song Georgia on My Mind, which is right. considered one of his signature songs. That song was co-written by Hoagie Carmichael in 1930, mm-hmm. who never did live in Georgia, but he had a sister by that name. Okay. Oh. Ray Charles himself was indeed from Georgia. Okay. And the song is the state song. That's right. Hey, Christopher, speaking of state songs, what artist has the distinction of having written and performed two state songs in the United States? I have no idea. I'll tell you the artist, John Denver. Oh. And the first one is Rocky Mountain High. Colorado. Colorado. State song of Colorado. Can you think of the other song? It's the opening line of one of his biggest songs. Thank God I'm a country boy. No. Almost heaven. Oh, West West Virginia. Virginia. Oh, wow. (laughs) So that's Country Roads Take Me Home. Oh. There you go. That's a good, cool song fact. (laughs) It's a very good one, isn't Mm, it? I like that one, yeah. That's Christopher and Tom, a couple of famous lost nerds. (laughs) Up next, one of the weirdest interviews from the archives a 1985 encounter with The Clash. You've got to hear this one. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. So far this week, we've heard from The Stones and Ray Charles, the greatest rock and roll band in the world, and The Genius. Now, the only band that matters. From 1980 and the album London Calling, that's Train in Vain by The Clash. What a classic album that is. I do love that track too. Yeah. But there's so much to love on that record. Absolutely. It is one of the, you know, Rolling Stone chose it the best album of the 80s. Ah. Um, Even though in England it came out in 1979, but it was released virtually on January 1st, 1980. Right. In North America. And so it just got in under the wire and it holds up so well. Like... The Clampdown, Hateful, Rudy Can't Fail, London Calling. The Right Profile. The Right Profile, <laughs> Train in Vain. Like just, it, it is a classic album. If you want a really great insight into kind of this punk, post-punk sound that influenced so many people, have a listen to The Clash, London Calling. Tom, at the time of this, we'll call it an odd interview yeah. from 1984, The Clash had gone a couple of years without a new record. As interviewer Larry Wilson points out to them, <laughs> Topper Heaton and Mick Jones had recently left, and it would have been reasonable for fans to wonder about the future of, quote, the only band that mattered, unquote. Most of this interview is with bassist Paul Simonon, but publicist Cosmo Vinyl also chimes in. He was a weird character sometimes, boy. You know what was weird was, was Larry going, can I talk to Cosmo? Yes. <laughs> in, the middle yeah. of the, in the middle of interviewing the artist, yeah. he goes, hey, can I talk to your publicist for a yeah. minute? <laughs> yeah, sure, he's right here. <laughs> that was the part that kind of made me go, huh? Yeah, that's coming up. <laughs> anyway, the subject matter roams from new members to financial issues and everything in between and may leave you a little mystified as to where it was all going. But we had to include it in this week's show because it's The Clash. Yeah. Have a listen to this. Here's Larry Wilson with Paul Simonon. It's Larry Wilson on Chum FM. Pleased to be on the phone with The Clash here. They'll be in town on Monday night. And uh, hey there, Paul Simonon, how you doing? All right. Good to talk to you. Well, how about the show in Toronto on Monday? What's it going to look like to us? Well, pretty interesting considering we've got a new lineup now. Yes. 
we've got uh, three new members. And you and Joe, and that's it? Yep, that's it. So it's five of us now. Paul, um, the, uh, I guess, among other things, The Clash has been most famous lately for its personnel changes, with Topper Hedden not uh, having been able to make up his mind whether to stay or to go. Yeah. How did you run across uh, Pete Howard and make him stick? Well, we held an audition in London uh, last year before we did, um, well, we did a tour of Texas and then we did the Us Festival. And uh, previous to that, a couple of months before, we had auditions for about 200 drummers. Mm-hmm. And he was the final one that came through. Um, and the new guys, why? Well, you needed one, obviously, but why um, Why the, uh, the fifth member of the Clash? Well, the decision we reached, which was uh, for Joe to give up playing the guitar, so he had to concentrate more on his singing and uh, just then lead to craze around a bit. Yeah. And it's working pretty good, you know. He's pretty independent now with that guitar. Does that make the feeling within the band any different, though, while you're performing? No, it's uh, it's stronger actually because I mean uh, Joe has always carried away, got carried away with his guitar playing and so <laughs> far as he was singing as well and always fancied to roll about on the stage a bit so he wasn't like uh, the most consistent guitar player. Yeah, so he doesn't pick it up at all now. Well, very occasionally, very rarely. If the mood grabs him, he does whatever he likes now. Right. We haven't seen a new record by The Clash since, oh my, it must be two years now. So, yeah, it is two years. Combat Rock. But since January, we've actually been on tour, since January. We started like a month in Europe, um, sorry, a month in California, then we went over to Europe and then Great Britain, and now we're doing a two-month stretch over your side of this country, you know. What kind of reception did you get in California? I know that 11 months ago... Um, People were pretty confused at first, but yeah. uh, once they started coming to the shows and the word got around, I think people really enjoyed what they saw. And the comment we hear most of all that is that people say it was better than it was the last time they saw us. Yeah. You know, with the old lineup. I know at the US Festival, you uh, you got the crowd down on you a bit by um, by really bad mouthing the whole scene in California in general. I think. Well, it well whatever. I mean, like. Uh, when we played California, it, it played off really good for us. I mean, uh, nobody had any gripes about us doing it or anything like that. It was great. We had a good reception everywhere. Getting back to the, uh, talking about the new album, do you have a title for it yet? Uh, no, not as yet. I mean, I should think the record will be out around about August, but we haven't got a title yet. Hmm. Boy, that's a long time between albums. It certainly is, yeah. You've got to be afraid somehow. When you leave that much time, you have to be afraid of somehow losing your core audience. I don't know. I don't really believe that, actually, because uh, we did a tour of Europe and uh, Great Britain, and most groups, even that have top ten singles, like uh, nobody actually comes to the shows. There's only probably about ten people turn up. And <laughs> like, we haven't got a record out, and we did a tour, and every show we did in Great Britain and Europe was sold out. Hmm. So, I mean, like, there's something... Different, obviously, for us. You know? <laughs> Indeed. Is Cosmo still in the room with you? Yeah, he's, yeah, he's uh, lounging around. Can I have a word with him? Yeah, you certainly can. Thanks a lot, Paul. Okay, Larry. Cosmo Vinyl is the uh, Clash press agent. Hello. Cosmo. Yes. Last time uh, we were in the same town together, I think, was 11 months ago, out near San Bernardino, California. Oh, yes. The US Festival. Yep. Now, at that point, at that point, the Clash earned six hundred thousand dollars for their appearance there. At least. Six hundred thousand. Excuse me. 
500,000. Fair enough. And you said at the time, in the, in the course of your ramblings at the press conference, you said that you were going to take the money back to England and invest it in new young bands. Yes. Can, can you give me a progress report on what, what that, what's happened because of that? All the money at the moment is frozen in a court case with Mick Jones. The money is injuncted, is the legal word. Oh, my. As, as is all the money for Combat Rock. Whoa. How are you guys surviving? Well, we'll, we'll get them by. Boy. And therefore, there has been no progress on that. Hmm. And we are at the moment in the process of uh, sorting it out. The and we shall have to take it from there. Um, Mick Jones will, of course, want quite a large amount of it. And uh, if it's not sorted out quick enough... Um, another large amount of it will go to uh, income tax. Yeah, and lawyers and things. Yes, so yeah. it remains to be seen how much of that money there will actually be left. How come that you couldn't work that out amicably when he left? Um, <clears throat> Mick Jones listens to his lawyers too much, and well, there wasn't really a problem. He just froze the money. I mean, we he didn't like, ask, and we refused to give it to him. He just froze it. Gets to be all a big pain after a while. Very much so. Hmm. Well, keep flying, and we'll see you guys on Monday. Okay, then, Larry. Thanks a lot, Cosmo. All right. Bye. Cosmo Vinyl, a press agent for The Clash, and Paul Simonon, bass player with The Clash. That is one of the most interesting and ultimately odd interviews in our archives, and that's not a reflection of the interviewer. That's the great Larry Wilson, who is certainly not afraid to call it as he sees no, it. No. I don't know if you're, like, where he says to uh, Cosmo Vinyl, he goes, when you were rambling there on stage, <laughs> like, that's just great. But Mick Jones is gone from the band, and for many years there was a talk of a reunion. And the album, by the way, that they were working on around the time of that interview was called Cut the Crap. Right. I don't really don't know the album that no, well, but nothing really happened from that album. You know, they had kind of a, a bad breakup, especially between Joe and Mick, but Mick Jones and Joe Strummer did eventually make up, and they had a pretty good relationship. There was a possibility of a Clash reunion, uh, but that, of course, ended with Joe Strummer's passing at the age of 50. It's such a sad state that, you know, their last album, what, 1982, 83, their last good album was so long ago with Combat Rock. That does it for this episode of Famous Lost Words. Our show was written by myself, Christopher Ward. The creator and co-writer is my co-host, Tom Jokic. Catch up on all the past episodes of the show wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, where we answer the questions, why did Def Leppard get angry at Tom during an interview? <laughs> also, <laughs> what did Jack Nicholson say when Christopher met him at the 1991 Grammy Awards? <laughs> and how did getting tossed out of an Ottawa bar inspire men without hats to write the safety dance to get caught up with more great moments subscribe to famous lost words on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts and don't forget to rate and review the show 